essentially, liturgy is how we worship God. This comes out of the virtue of religion. Religion, most properly understood, is part of the virtue of justice, where we attempt to render to God what is due to God. Somehow worship is coming back into the presence of God, being back in that relationship with God. Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show, sponsored by Ave Maria University. I'm your host, Michael Dauphiné, and today I am pleased to be joined by colleague and friend, Dr. Daniel Lenman. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. It's good to be here. Excellent. And uh, today we're continuing our series on the Eucharistic revival as called by the U.S. Catholic bishops. Uh, we're actually in already almost completed year one. Uh, we have two more years of this kind of rediscovery of the gift of the Eucharist. Uh, the bishops actually, when they began it, they uh, went back to uh, Pope Francis during the beginning of the lockdown around the pandemic. And Pope Francis did a rite in St. Peter's Square that I think was empty. And it was a rite of benediction and blessing, right? That uh, what do we need? We need the presence of Jesus, right? And, and so he, you know, he did this in such a rich way. And I think that's really what the bishops are wanting us to unpack and digest during this time. And so I thought it'd be great during this episode to really focus on how is it that we understand the Eucharist in the context of the liturgy, and especially within the context of Holy Week, right? This right. beautiful week of Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, the Easter Vigil, Easter Sunday, the Octave of Easter. Anyway, so how do we understand the Eucharist within the context of Holy Week? That's really the question uh, that I want to look at today. And I thought maybe I'd just put before you as a you know a seasoned teacher, and I'm sure you're used to lots of questions from students, uh, that if the Eucharist is Jesus, and if it is all that we need, body, blood, soul, and divinity, right, why not just receive the Eucharist? You know, I, it's like, why do we have to go through kind of long masses? Uh, why do we go through long days of masses and uh, all these kind of liturgies when it would seem that, you know, we could, I mean, not not, not to be crass, but right, you'd almost just have a, a drive-through. Right. Right. You go through the church, you drive through, it's nice and fast, it's convenient. The church has never done this, right? So why? Yeah. Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's, I think that's a really great question, especially in light of the context of COVID. I feel like there was a little bit of that going on where you kind of did mass on TV at mm, home. And then, yes. you, if, you know, those who were lucky enough got to go somewhere to receive, you know, yeah. communion, mm -hmm. you know, you know, that's all you did. Um, so that's, uh, I think that's a great question. And I think the, the short answer is that, the purpose of the Eucharist, and indeed the purpose of our lives, is to worship God. And that it's, mm. it, it isn't just mm -hmm. about receiving Jesus, it's about offering the highest act of worship. That's the, whole, that's the context in which the Eucharist has to be understood. There's a lot to the Eucharist. It is the source and summit of our life, and so there's lots of different ways to analyze it. And yeah. um, if you kind of lose sight of any one of them, you're kind of missing out on what its purposes. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably helpful then to talk about the liturgy and just what is liturgy as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't you start there? What is, what is liturgy? What does that word even mean? Yeah, that's uh, essentially it. Liturgy is this liturgy is how we worship God. Mm -hmm. It's the, the rites that we do, the, the practices that we do to worship God, however we may, may do. And this is, this is, this comes out of the virtue of religion Religion, most properly understood, is part of the virtue of justice, where we attempt to render to God what is due to God. And that's a fundamental human longing and disposition uh, to offer God right worship. What's wonderful, starting with, with Moses, is that God laid out a particular way in which worship is supposed to happen. And then that's, that's what guides us from there. But as we know, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament liturgies were what we call shadows of the New Testament realities. And the Old Testament worship, 
was there to set up our understanding of what was to come. To really put this in context, so we, to understand, we have to understand what worship is. And that's another sort of complicated feature, uh, or complicated question, because there's a lot of different aspects there. But Ratzinger, I think, really gives us a uh, clear window into what worship is by putting it in context of the relationship we have with God originally in Genesis, where everything's in right order in, in Genesis, where Adam and Eve are there with God in the garden. There's even, uh, the, the you analyze the Old Testament in Genesis 1 through 3, there's, much, there's a lot of temple imagery, mm-hmm. right? This is, it's up on the high place. This is where men went to worship God in the ancient world. The, the, there are precious stones and gems. It's ornate. Mm-hmm. There's flowers. There's angels present. Um, and even Adam is set up as a priest there's, where he's told to till and keep the garden. The Hebrew words can also be translated as serve and guard, which in numbers is that's yes. a priestly duty. Yeah. So Adam's being set up as a priest. There's, there's this idea of this original harmony with God, man's original relationship with God, uh, where everything is in right order. And... Of course, sin is what does away with this, but somehow worship is coming back into the presence of God, being back in that relationship with God by offering God what is due, by Mm -hmm. recognizing our place with respect to God. That's how we we find our fulfillment, because that's how we were made in the beginning when it was good and then very good. We were made to be in right relationship with God. That means we're made to worship God. And that, so that's what we're aiming at in uh, in this activity of worship. Just sort of, yeah. that's a really fast summary of something I do in no, like no. three, four, <laughs> you know, lectures in class. That's but, great. Yes, yeah. and it is wonderful that uh, you've been teaching a course on the sacraments for our undergraduate uh, theology majors and other students right. uh, for many years here. And so it's wonderful to be able to sit down with you and uh, kind of dive in and maybe give uh, some uh, alumni or just fellow travelers, yeah. a little kind of little window into your course. And, you know, one thing it kind of reminds me of is, I don't remember who it is, but somebody describes man just not as homo sapiens, man the knower, but homo adorans. That's right. Man the adorer. And the idea that we will worship something. If we don't worship God, we will worship something else. We will always, we're just kind of, a, you know, we're, we're creatures made for worship. And the problem is, is we will either worship the true God, or right. we will worship kind of false gods uh, that C.S. Lewis one time puts in the weight of glory. He says uh, they will become they're the good things of the earth, but when we worship them as God, they will become dumb idols that will break the hearts of their worshipers. And, and again, I think if we see ourselves as always already worshiping something, and those things that we worship are actually breaking our hearts, then the idea to be freed for right worship yeah. is so significant. And I think, you know, that you you were talking about the shadows of the Old Testament worship. And 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 Ratzinger talks about that idea in his Spirit of the Liturgy, a wonderful right. book, uh, where he talks about kind of in the Exodus, we are freed from, in a way, the idolatries of Egypt in order to be freed to worship. And and I think, by the way, it's also helpful to remember that the language of shadows doesn't mean negative things. That's right. Like my shadow is my is mine. Like my shadow is different than your shadow. And so the shadow of Christ in the Old Testament, the and Aquinas will say, right, that the sacrifices of the Old Testament were already orienting the believer to the true God. That's right. They were a rejection of idolatry and a prefigurement of Christ. So they're not kind of merely a shadow. They also were genuine worship, which is important. So therefore, then, when Christ fulfills them, he takes them up into himself. That's right. Uh, but maybe if you could just say a word about that sense of um, the way that in Exodus we're freed, like so, so that liturgy is not an imposition, but is really a, a, a freedom. Right. The I, lo- I love that uh, quote from... From Lewis, because that's exactly right. These idols that break our hearts, um, but maybe a good way to look at the way we're free is to look at the, the, the case of the golden calf. Okay, um, yeah. Ratzinger has a great great take on that uh, that I, I really like. 
So, you know, Moses is up on the mountain Sinai. He's receiving the Ten Commandments. He's gone with the elders are up there. And it, um, there they're, they're sitting in the presence and eating in the presence of God and all these beautiful sort of Eucharistic images already present there. But the people are down, you know, and, you know, where has he gone? As is this Moses, we don't know what has happened to him. Perhaps he was destroyed by God. And so the people come and tell Aaron, you know, make this calf of gold for us, yeah. and they give him gold, and he makes this golden calf, and he says, here, Israel is the God who brought you out of Egypt. Now, there's a couple of ways to take that. And one way, it's just they've created a false god, an idolatry. They're worshiping this calf as, you know, instead of God. That's, that, and it seems like at least some of them were doing this. But another way is that this is the Lord, right? The calf is God, mm. uh, like the Lord who brought them out. Of, and they're worshiping God the best way they knew how, looking back to the rites of the Egyptians. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, this is how we learned how to worship with from the Egyptians. Let's just do it our way. But, you know, they, there they're going to heaven and bringing it, as it were, they're bringing it down. They're, they're taking command over this divine thing. They're, they're humanizing God and they're humanizing divine worship. So in, mm -hmm. in one account, mm -hmm. what Aaron has done is, you know, maybe the worst act of you know, liturgical abuse in mm -hmm. biblical history, you know, um, mm -hmm. it would explain sort of maybe the, the, there's some different punishments for people. Some people get slain and some people just have to drink, um, drink the water uh, that where he grinds up the, Moses grinds up the golden calf and puts the, puts the, in the water and makes him drink it. Um, so the, there's a, what, they're being freed from then is from this binding themselves to these, these, well, what in, in the end are demons, right? That are mm. blinding them to the truth yeah. and they're being freed to come back to right relationship with God. Yeah. And so when the worship at Sinai is happening correctly, you see all this sort of Genesis imagery where it's, oh, man's back in relationship with God. You know, there's, he's back uh, he's able to dwell in God's presence once again. Mm -hmm. He's able to uh, have this harmony. And the the, origin, the idea that uh, St. Irenaeus has, brings us up several times, this idea of recapitulation. The order of creation is recapitulated yeah. again and again in, in the Old Testament, and ultimately it's finally in the New, but it's recapitulated. And what that means is, man, is, it's, you're put back in this relationship yeah. as, as best we can given our circumstances. Yeah. And of course, it's right. It's not accidental by any means, very providential that uh, you have the Passover meal, the slaying of the Passover lamb, the offering of the Passover lamb, the eating of the Passover yeah. lamb as that which frees Israel in order to go into the desert, in order to worship God correctly, in order to receive the law and receive the tabernacle, God indwelling. And right and as we move right into the new covenant, right, it's it's at a Passover meal, the yeah. Passover, like this the same Israelite celebration of that same feast is where Jesus institutes the Last Supper. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. And right at the beginning of the document that the uh, bishops wrote uh, about the Eucharistic revival, uh, this is what it says. They begin with at the Mass of the Lord's Supper celebrated on Holy Thursday. The priest prays these words. So he is the true eternal priest who instituted the pattern of an everlasting sacrifice and who was the first to offer himself as the saving victim, commanding us to make this offering as his memorial. As we eat his flesh that was sacrificed for us, we are made strong. As we drink his blood who was poured out, that was poured out for us, we are washed clean. And then they continue, the words of the liturgy on the night the church commemorates the institution of the Eucharist speaks to us of the Mass as the representation of Christ's unique sacrifice on the cross, the reception of Christ truly present in the sacrament of the Eucharist, and the marvelous effects of communion in those who receive this gift. They actually use that kind of as the whole, uh, the sacrifice, the presence, and the communion, which becomes the structure. Uh, but so how could you then help us move from, say, the Right, you know, the, this Old Testament imagery of being reordered, re-entering Genesis, uh, l letting go of false visions of God and false visions of worship, uh, to now turning into the right into the new covenant at the at the Lord's right last supper. 
right on Holy Thursday. Why is why is that really necessary to understand what what Christ is doing uh, on Holy Thursday? Yeah, I think that's um, maybe a, a good way to go into that first is just yeah. think about sacrifice mm-hmm. and what sacrifice is, and really is ends up being the heart of worship. Again, following a kind of Ratzingerian analysis. So the heart of if sacrifice is the heart of worship, and worship is right relationship with God. Then you see what is happening in sacrifice. It's it's not the destruction of animals that God delights in. That's not mm-hmm. <clears throat> He says that many times, right? Yeah. Um, but what it is is it, what seems formal is the recognition of God's sovereignty over all things. That you're there's this mm-hmm. submission to Him in this way. What also seems important is, uh, again, going back to Genesis, being in right relationship with God, man was dwelling in the promise, if you sinned, you were going to die. That was the promise. Yeah. So being coming in God's presence in sin means death, means your death. And then you say, well, nobody died in, in Genesis, uh, so that, that seems problematic. When you say, well, there's a few answers to that. One, it's like, well, there's spiritual death. That's what we're talking about. Or two, they'll, they'll eventually die before they weren't. And I think yeah. those are true answers. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is there is actually death in Genesis. There is, uh, and it's it's kind of hidden. You don't see it, but God takes the skins of animals and clothes Adam and Eve. And this is, I think, a beautiful line and it, full of rich meaning, going back to like ancient rabbinic readings of it. But if God has taken the skins of animals, unless he's being extraordinarily cruel, usually you slay the animal, mm-hmm. right? So an animal has died to cover Adam and Eve with the skins of animals. Well, what has that done? If you if we recall the effect that we see immediately after they sin, Adam and Eve, they say they realize they were naked, right? And then they were ashamed. So the, the skins cover over the effects of their sin. So you see simultaneously the achievement of animal sacrifice and its limitations. The achievement is God allows this animal to, as it were, die in place of Adam and Eve. And they, uh, so there is a death that's required. There's a shedding of blood that's required in, pl- in their place. But it co- and they're, they're, and by this, it's able to over- cover over their sins. But there's still a problem, right? There's, the problem is still within. Yeah. They still have, yeah. and so yeah. Yeah. you know they'll have we to make this sacrifice our again. Our nakedness, we cover our vulnerability, exactly. our woundedness, our shame, uh, right? But the shame remains exactly, right? uh, and exactly. and in that sense, we are uh, right. The sacrifice is is helpful, uh, but incomplete. Exactly, uh, and so you know, perhaps then you could like right when John the Baptist in the Gospel of John sees Jesus, tells his apostles, behold, the Lamb of God. He identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God. And I know you've uh, spoken about and uh, a lot of understanding of how Jesus speaks about his own hour. Yeah. Um, Right. How, what's the relationship between Christ as the Lamb of God and then Christ's hour in maybe the gospel of John, but really just in the whole life of the liturgy for us? I think that's uh, crucial. That's a great Point to, point of departure because the traditionally the the animal skins that Adam and Eve were clothed with, by, you know, the rabbinic tradition, ancient Jewish tradition, is they were lamb skins. Oh, so, okay. So this idea that the mm-hmm. first sacrifice in all of Scripture was done on behalf of man by God, mm-hmm. and it's a sacrifice of a lamb in mm-hmm. in their place. And then you have, of course, the Passover lamb that you you spoke of yeah. all, uh, before, and now we have John pointing the Lamb of God. So. There's a that's a term that's laden with meaning. Um, that's also helpful to understand <laughs> in light of the Old Testament. Again, the sacrifice of Isaac, the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, where afterwards Abram, when Isaac's not slain, Abram Abraham says, "God will provide Himself the lamb." Yes, and the Hebrew is actually ambiguous there, right? Because it's He's gonna. He himself is going to provide a lamb, or he's going to. He himself will be the lamb. No, nobody would take that, that. That God would be a lamb. That doesn't make any sense. Until you know, you have John the Baptist point. Here's the Lamb of God. Yes. And there's a great. And what's interesting is right after you know Abraham says that they find a ram, right? And that but rams aren't lambs. <laughs> <laughs> 
And so there's this idea, yeah. even in Israel, kind of waiting for this Lamb of God, this mm-hmm. Lamb that God's going to provide. So when John the Baptist is pointing to Christ and saying that, this is there's so much meaning uh, that's yeah. implied. And of course, there. even in Isaiah 53, right, the suffering servant, the Messiah, will be like right a lamb before its shears, right, and so. Right, clearly, you know, the Old Testament is looking for a, a lamb. That's right. That that is somehow seen, but not seen. That's right. right? Yeah. That's right. And so, in the context of the Gospel of John, you do you encounter this this hour, and it's a very mysterious thing. The first time you hear it is in the wedding feast of Cana, there in chapter two, where Our Lady asks uh, our Lord to. You know, they have no wine, and then. He says, "Woman, what does this have to do with you and uh, you know and me? My hour has not yet come." Very mysterious. There's a lot to go into there. I'm going to resist doing that, but <laughs> um, the uh, it's a very mysterious hour. But it has something to do with a wedding and, in fact, death. That's that's hidden there, but it's there. And then you see other instances of the hour coming up. Another one is where you see a very mysterious aspect is in John four, where our Lord's speaking with the woman at the well, and he says, "You were, you know, she's asking about worship." He says, you guys worship in Jerusalem. We worship here. You're a prophet. I can tell. What is this? What are, what are we supposed to do? And, and our Lord says, the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. So now we have this mysterious hour that's somehow coming but is also present. It's able to, and it has to do with worship and worshiping in spirit and truth. And then we have, you know, in chapter 13, the Greeks come in the, in, to seeking our Lord, and our Lord says, "Now has the hour come." Right. So this hour has sort of is able to be in different places because he'll also say, "Jesus knew that his hour had come." Later in, in, uh, in that was, sorry, that's twelve, and then in thirteen, knew that his hour had come, and it seems to be speaking about the Last Supper. Mm, yeah. But then the hour also seems to be the crucifixion. So what is this this hour? Well. It's. I would argue that it is the Last Supper. It is the crucifixion. It is the resurrection, sort of all combined in one. And to understand this better, we have to think about the reality of the incarnation, that our Lord is both God and man. As man, his actions are bound by time and space. He's limited in this way. But as God, and he, there's an, as it were, eternal, atemporal aspect to his actions. We have to recognize this is, you know, theandric operations, the operations of the God-man. And so somehow it's in virtue of his divinity then that sort of the reality of the one hour is able to be present in various times and places. And now you, you're going to understand, yeah. oh, we're not limited to worshiping God in Jerusalem or on this mountain or here. But there's there's a universality to the worship of God. He's not attached to a time and place. We don't, but, uh, but he's able to be worshiped everywhere in spirit and truth. Yeah. And, and there's a fascinating line that shows up, uh, I think, at least like five or six times in the New Testament. Uh, before the foundation of the world. And you have in Revelation, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. In Matthew 25, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, you have the uh, idea that come receive the kingdom that was prepared for you before the foundation of the world. And how could these things that happen in time, especially, right, the incarnation, how could the lamb be slain before the foundation of the world? Well, it's because, right, the person of the lamb that's is right. eternal, the eternal son of yeah. God, who is also, though, genuinely in time. Yeah. Uh, and and I think that image of that the hour of that he is, is, is right, the hour of his manifestation, the hour of his uh, doing the signs and being believed in. Right. right? Uh, the hour of raising Lazarus. Yeah. The hour of the Last Supper, the hour of the crucifixion, the hour of the resurrection, the gift of the Holy Spirit, that all these are one. And if we can already see that kind of unity in God's action, in Jesus's own historical life, and then in a way all the moments of Jesus' life are somehow united That's right. in his divine sonship, 
then I think we're already kind of like we're setting ourselves up to understand why we can enter into that same Eucharistic hour today Precisely. through the liturgy. We're not, we're not repeating, right, what was done. We're not merely kind of remembering. We're certainly not sacrificing Christ again. That's right. We're entering into that hour that was on Holy Thursday, that hour of Calvary, that hour of uh, Jesus's resurrection and appearance to the women and to the apostles, you know, to his gift of the Spirit. So uh, let's go ahead and uh, take a break. And, and when we get back, let's talk a little bit more about right, this actual, right, the Holy Triduum, the three days of this this great worship of Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and, and the Easter Vigil. Great. Uh, so we'll be right back. You're listening to The Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. If you'd like to support our mission, we invite you to prayerfully consider joining our Annunciation Circle, a monthly giving program aimed at supporting our staff, faculty, and Catholic faith formation. You can visit us at avemaria.edu to learn more. Thank you for your continued support, and now let's get back to the show. Welcome back to the Catholic Theology Show, and today uh, my guest is Daniel Lenman, uh, professor of theology at Ave Maria University, and we are discussing uh, the Eucharist as part of this uh, Eucharistic revival called for by the U.S. Catholic bishops, specifically in the context of Holy Week and the liturgy, and how does the liturgy and Holy Week help us to understand the Eucharist better, but also how do we in a way, understand and enter into right the liturgy in general of the Mass, and then specifically uh, this beautiful ancient liturgy of, of these three days of Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and uh, Holy uh, Saturday and Easter Sunday. So please, uh, you know, please lead us through some of these. Sure, as you know, the Triduum. There's so much there. There's so so many ways to consider this. Um, what what I uh, suggested is or what I'm is that we'll go. I will have three verses that I want to use to help us kind of understand what's going on in those passages or in those uh, liturgies. Excuse me. So the first verse that I think is helpful for understanding the uh, Holy Thursday liturgy is John thirteen one. It says, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Mm, and th- yeah. this idea of the end is going to be important. And this, I want us to remind us that the end of man, the telos of man, his purpose uh-huh. is to yeah. worship God. Yeah, so he just doesn't love them until he doesn't. He loves them for a purpose. Exactly. For their purpose. Exactly yeah. so. And while in John the explicit, there's no explicit institution narrative. Uh, there's a great argument. Uh, Michael Waldstein actually gave a great talk at our con- recent conference showing yes. how why there isn't an institution narrative. Why with John six it's sort of implied the Eucharist is implied there, and why John does that. But not getting into that, our Lord does institute the Eucharist. Yes, yes, <laughs> that's a fact. Um, and so thinking about that Holy Thursday liturgy is in in an a particular way, a time for the church to reflect on this great gift of the Eucharist and all that it implies, right? The whole of our life flows out from the Eucharist. It's the source and summit. So all the sacramental life is ordered to this and and comes from this because it is our Lord truly present body, blood, soul, and divinity. And reflecting on that, I, uh, I think Thomas Aquinas in the Tertia Pars, the third part of his Summa Theologiae, has what I think is maybe the most beautiful thing he's ever <laughs> written in uh, Question 75, Article 1, where he's talking about whether Christ is in his sacrament in very truth, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And he argues, he, makes, he gives three arguments. And the first takes us back to, you know, again, very directly to the conversation we're having previously where he said that the Old Testament sacrifices were, were limited and were asking for something more. And so there needed to be something uh, new. There needed to be something added 
to make the sacrifice complete. So instead of just covering over the effects of the sin, we needed to be renewed from within. And so there's this reality that's made present to us, whereas before we had the sacraments of the Old Testament, the old law, pointing to the new, now we have the reality present with us in in the Eucharist, in, in the sacramental life. Secondly, the second argument, and this I think is this particularly beautiful. Thomas says essentially that our Lord, having loved his own and loved mm-hmm. them to the end, he wants to be with his friends. Yeah, and this is this is the fundamental reality of the of the incarnation as well as the Eucharist. He's true God and true man, and you can say, oh well, he's going to be united with them spiritually. It's like, well, but that's good, and that's mm-hmm. but that's not the way men not the way humans are supposed to be in relationship and to, supposed to live out their friendships. When I'm away from my friends, it's painful. I miss them. And, you know, the yeah. spiritual union is wonderful, but I want them here. Yes, yes. <laughs> and that, because that's the proper way for friendship to be lived. As you know, this goes back to Aristotle, that friendship is a, a common life. And so desiring to be with his friends as a man can be with his friends, but he establishes the Eucharist as a way to be truly present with his friends, yeah. the disciples, but his friends throughout all generations and in all nations, all yeah. places throughout the world by being able to be truly bodily, uh, present bodily, blood, soul, and divinity. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting there, too, that I think sometimes we are so maybe quick to want to defend the divinity of Jesus or want to defend the kind of holiness or the kind of the the, the divinity of, in a certain sense, of the Eucharist, or uh, that we also forget, or, or sometimes we may overlook that body, blood, soul of Christ are present. Yeah. Christ's complete humanity That's exactly is right. present. Now, it's present, of course, in a, in a, in a risen way. Um, we're not eating his, you know, beard. We're not eating his teeth. You know, obviously, you know, we're, we're all of his complete you know, physical presence at the right hand of the Father is present in a, you know, in a, in a mode so that he is physically completely present in every mode. That's right. Of, and that's also why we receive it under the appearance of, you know, bread and wine. Uh, but in a certain sense, his complete human personality, you know, it's like when we see another human being, you're right. It's like we, um, you know, we're excited. We want to give them a hug. We, that particular person, you know, sometimes you can recognize the voice of a loved one before you see them because you just know the very timber of their voice. Right. Uh, sometimes I have, I, I can tell which member of the family is walking down the steps because right. I know that. And the idea that Jesus is a full human being, like he's, you know, he's has a complete human personality, not a human person, right? It's the only divine person, but a complete human personality with warmth and affection. And he wants to be our friends. That's right. You know what I mean? And, and he says, right, in John 15, right, I no longer call you servants, but I call, I call you, you friends. friends. That's right. And so seeing the aspect of the <clears throat> Eucharist as this intimate encounter with our best friend. That's right. Right. Uh, and I think it's just anyway, a beautiful image that you've drawn attention to uh, from Aquinas and it's 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 really helpful. I think the kind of focus on that aspect, even in in Thomas Aquinas's own life, uh, there's a story. His his secretary, you know, Brother Reginald, would see Thomas in in the chapel in the middle of the night, with his head just pressed against the tabernacle. Mm-hmm. And you think of Thomas as a cerebral, you yeah. know, this, you know, he's, but. No, he wanted to be as intimately, physically yeah. close mm-hmm. to our Lord as possible. All, at all times, and this is yeah. this is uh, the in his own life, he's bearing witness mm-hmm. to the reality that, mm-hmm. that he's teaching us in his, in his written work. There's also a uh, aspect that the Eucharist said it is hidden, and uh, in, in the great hymn, the Adoro te devote, right? Visus tactus gustus in te falito, right? Uh, sight, touch, taste, all fail to attain to the reality. Mm-hmm. Said audito toto creditor, but hearing alone is, is can be fully believed. Yeah. There is a invitation then to believe in our Lord in the Eucharist. This is this is in some way uh, an, uh, this is good for us. 
Yeah. Uh, that's hard mm-hmm. for us to grasp, and that that that'll I think I'll come back to that point later. But just okay. I want to set us sure. up for that. Yeah. But that's sort of the the good the Holy Thursday we get to yeah. revel in our Lord's gift in the, this amazing yeah. act of love. But you can't understand Holy Thursday yeah. without Good Friday, uh, and that's in the and I think John nineteen thirty really brings home the reality of the of Good Friday and the whole and the whole of this when it's talking about our Lord on the cross, His last words. They offered Him the vinegar to drink, and He says, "It is accomplished," or "It is finished." And the Greek there um, word it, it comes from the word. Uh, Teleo, which was or telos, purpose, right? It's it's fully accomplished. It's in the Latin. It's uh, rendered uh, consummated, right? It's consummato es. It's so it's not just over. It's mm-hmm. not like just finished. Like I got, got to the end of yeah. the line, mm-hmm. but it's been fulfilled. Yeah. And that was the same word that you mentioned, right? In John thirteen one, he loved them to, to the, the end, exactly to so. the telos, to the perfection. Now, right? It is. Finished. What's the end? What's the perfection? Right, Jesus's death on the cross, and in that, it's not just the perfection of His act, but that's mm-hmm. the perfection of all humanity, of the yes. whole purpose of mm-hmm. mankind. Mm-hmm. Now we can be reconciled to God again. Now yeah. we can. The, the Lamb has been slain so that we can enter into the Lord's presence. Right, mm-hmm. there has to be a shedding of blood to come into God's presence because of our sin. Mm-hmm. Now we have the Lamb that was slain. Yeah. Who doesn't just cover over mm-hmm. our sins, but we are, yeah. can now be renewed from within, which is why, again, we should receive the Eucharist as that a reminder that this is an internal cleansing, an eternal uh, rebirth, an internal reforming. And, uh, and this is, again, the reality of the Eucharist. We're eating, but in fact, by consuming the Eucharist, we're becoming conformed to him. We're yeah. not conforming yeah, him us, to so us. To yeah, that's exactly yeah, right. He digests us into himself. And and, and there is that, that beautiful theme, too, about that, you know, we can sacrifice everything external to us, but we can never sacrifice our own egos. That's because right. our egos yeah, are always yeah. the agent of the sacrifice. So, right, Jesus does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He offers his he doesn't offer his ego because he has no ego. He has yeah. just the pure self of of love, the pure self that is holy son. Yeah. Holy son in relation to the Father, right? Which is why Aquinas will say, right, that he offers the satisfaction that Christ makes is out of charity. Right. Right. And so, and I think that also goes back to that beautiful image from um, you know, the Old Testament in uh, that sense in which God will take away our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. Exactly. Anyway, that's really what we have. We have stony hearts that even despite our best efforts to love our neighbor, uh, to love our family members, right, to love even people that love us dearly, uh, we still have kind of the, I don't know, the you know, the twinges of uh, pride of, you know, this kind of, we, we you know, we can get hurt feelings. Uh, we, we kind of know in our hearts that we don't love them right. and we don't love God as much as we would want to. And, right. and, and Jesus makes that possible for us on the cross. I also think it's fascinating. Uh, we did another podcast uh, that hopefully will come out uh, soon on with Father Thomas Wynandy on the Gospel of John, and especially John 6. But one of the things that I learned from him that I'd never really noticed before is right after saying, it is finished, it is completed, it is perfected, it is consummated. Jesus on the cross, right, John 19, 31, as you mentioned, right, it goes to, and he delivered his spirit right right and the the greek there is also he handed over it's the kind of it, he traditioned the very technical paradosis or um tridere in the latin his spirit he breathed his spirit he passed on his spirit and that's the same spirit in a way that he will give uh to the disciples in the upper room and he will give to right his whole church at pentecost so uh it's this death that is a complete sacrifice, and yet, like he doesn't kind of he does die, but he doesn't he he the the spirit of union, the spirit of the son with the father, is 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 alive. That's right, and, and it's actually enters into human history at that very moment, uh, and 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 in a way, it's 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 always there now, right? That that the sense of right, we now worship in spirit. And in truth, that true spirit of filial, of us kind of sonly or daughterly trust and love in God the Father, 
uh, that spirit of sonship in a way that we simply don't have on our own. That's right. But that that he gives us. But it's at that moment, you know, uh, where where he makes that ultimate sacrifice. And that's and then that that handing for over his spirit, delivering his spirit, that is in John that sets us up mm-hmm. for what happens right mm-hmm. after, where his side is pierced. And then the blood and water flow yeah, forth from more. his side. Say more. So, so we worship in spirit and truth, but the mode of worship that we have is still a human mode. Yeah. And so, the mm-hmm. the blood and water flowing from Christ's side is is always been taught. This is the establishment of the sacrament, the sacramental yeah. order, the mm-hmm. sacramental worship, the the, the, blood, the Eucharist, and Baptism, yeah. most uh, right. most especially and of course, being going signified back to the there. Old, the Last Supper as well on Holy Thursday, you'd have that do this in memory mm-hmm. of me. So it's not merely what Jesus is doing. Jesus is doing something else. He's being, in a certain sense, very kind of, uh, you know, very divine. Because yeah. Aquinas will say that right, God is so powerful that He shares His causality with His creatures. He gives His creatures the dignity of causality. So if Christ is right offering the complete worship of the Father, and he's communicating it through the bread and wine that are his body and blood. He gives his apostles and the bishops and the priests after him the ability to be kind of instrumental causes. Yes, I mean, certainly not causes right. simply, but to be instrumental causes for communicating that. So, That's right. Right, you have then, right at that moment, kind of the establishment in some ways, right, of of, of the bishops, the apostles, the right. priesthood. And then when you get to the reception of blood and wine flowing, then you have the sacraments. So the sacraments are also ordered to the church. That's right. Right, so we see a whole new kingdom in a way. So the spirit and truth means uh, the truth isn't intellectually merely. The truth is that these sacraments are truly <laughs> saving they're right. not a figure of anything further as, say, the lamb in the Old Testament was a figure of some New future yeah, lamb that's right. to come. That's right. That's wow, right. that's so that's so powerful to see. And I, all of that what, that we've said of the sacrifice is right, and but we just as in so many of these things, we also cannot neglect. We sort of emphasize the good parts, <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> but we yes. we can't forget the the sort of the the sad or the bad parts of yeah. Good Friday, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and I, death. and this we can go back to John three to help us understand this, where you know just as Moses raised up the serpent, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. This is very uh, so. What was going on? The references to the people were murmuring against our Lord again, and in the wilderness. And they, there was a plague of, of serpents that was sent among them. And uh, in order to be de- freed from this, Moses made a, our Lord told Moses to make a bronze serpent and lift it on the staff, and as many as looked on it were healed. This is such a curious thing. There's so many th- aspects. You know, why would you, people who have struggled with idolatry, why would you make something that, <laughs> yeah. of, of an image of a creature and that that's going to be their salvation? But I think that that's precisely how to understand what's going on there. So the context of John 3 there is the, the discussion with Nicodemus. And our Lord says, "If I, I'm explaining to you earthly things and you do not understand. How are you going to understand heavenly things? The way we ascend to heavenly things is by our Lord being lifted up. And he's yeah. taking, he's showing us the, the, how these earthly signs are pointing to God, the Father, and And he gives, by being raised up, he gives us sort of this middle step to get to him, which is ultimately, this middle step is establishing the sacramental order, which uses earthly things to communicate heavenly realities to us. But I think you're suggesting there's one other step. It's not merely lifting up. It's lifting up on a cross. And so, yeah, right, how do you, exactly. at least one of the things I've thought about with respect to the bronze serpent is, what's he doing when he's lifting up the serpent? It's a dead serpent in a way. You're yeah. showing to a certain look up here. It's kind of it, it's 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 dead in a way. That's and right. And when we look up at Jesus on the cross, we see a, 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 a dead human being. That's right. 
right? Like death. Yeah. And, and in a way, what we're doing is saying, what? I mean, we worship many things, right? <laughs> we worship pretty much anything. We'll worship any animal. We'll worship a tree. We'll also worship, right, money, football, you name it, uh, golf, right? Whatever it is, we will worship it. Anything that we desire, right? Right. Um, you know, uh, you know, anyway, in, in so many different lusts or things. It's just, you know, we, we, we can worship anything. But fundamentally, what do we worship, right, in a way ourselves? Yeah, that's right. And so we have to not only see kind of the dead lamb, the dead 401K, the dead <laughs> the dead um, things of the world, you know, the, the new car, Corvette that we got that gets crashed and we begin to see like, oh, okay, I can't put my hope in that. Right. Uh, I always have a beautiful story, by the way, of I remember learning about uh, the the really powerful idea that so many athletes, by the way, end their careers involuntarily. Yeah, It's really fascinating. Most athletes, whether or not they're in high school or college or professional, they end their careers by an injury. Right. right. Uh, and and that's a huge sacrifice in a way. Do What do they have that's higher? And those who do right. move on and those who don't. Right. So. But when we look up there, we see like fundamentally, we see a they I die, I have to die on that cross. That's right. That Jesus died for me so that I could somehow die. And and you're right, and that's painful. That's right. Uh, that's not easy in a way to kind of die to ourselves and to kind of look and realize that in Jesus, that death somehow becomes my death. Right. We have to uh, again. They should look on Him whom they have pierced. Yeah. So looking yeah, on the crucifix yeah. becomes the image of sin. Yeah, image yeah, of that death. I have, right? I have pierced him. Exactly. Right? I did it. Exactly. Exactly. The way so we're meant to discover. And, it. and that's you know, Saint Paul says he he who became sin for us, right? Yeah. You know, this is, uh, it's yeah, it's yeah. so the reality A of sin the, offering in some ways is that idea. Exactly. Right? You know, the the offering of our sin. And so we you look to the crucifix and you see the most terrible thing yeah, ever yeah. in the history of mankind and the most wonderful thing so at the same time. I do time. want to make sure just because we're uh, beginning to kind of run towards the end of our episode. Oh, sure. Uh, say a word or two then about, um, about you know, like uh, Holy Saturday and the oh, resurrection yeah. so the, quickly if you So we, we have the end of this hour it's, and we think it's all over and then there's just this, the darkness of Holy Saturday. It's always just quiet time on Holy Saturday. And I I went to John 16, 7, this, where our Lord says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage or is it expedient that I go away? So the the absence of our Lord on Holy Saturday, the fact that the church doesn't offer mass, there's no yeah. Eucharist on this day, this is to our advantage. This, this prepares mm-hmm. us to come to know him in the new way in which he's in mm-hmm. the Eucharist, the way we can, can come to know him in spirit and truth. And that's confirmed in uh, John 20 when Mary Magdalene encounters our Lord in the garden. He says, don't hold on to me, right? You know, don't noli me tangere. You know, don't, don't grab on to me. Don't hold me. Because she wanted to have him have that interaction as they had before. Yeah. But it's a new mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a new thing. And it's a better thing. It's a harder thing in, in some ways. But it's it's going to challenge us according to uh, seeing the fulfillment of the sacrifice to experience this friendship on a m- more profound level and to exercise our faith, which is why our Lord instituted the Eucharist. So you can't hold on to me here in this this bodily yeah. time on earth. I'm not that kind of Messiah, mm-hmm. right? But you're going to have me in the Eucharist, yeah. which is more than you can ever enjoy, right? You're ever, or ever uh, imagine mm-hmm. this this depth of love that you can have. Every time our Lord commands us or or challenges or questions us, it's always an invitation. This is a theme in the yes. Gospel of John, an invitation to turn to him and say, I don't understand. Help me go deeper. Yeah. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Yeah. This is what we're invited to do with the Eucharist. We, yeah. we are being challenged. We are being commanded. We are going forth. And it's in, in, in that is the invitation to turn more deeply to him in, in this relationship. And so Holy Saturday is supposed to be a challenge that helps us yeah. ask the right questions to be in yeah. the state of mind that, so that to appreciate really resurrection. the resurrection exactly and so. the gift of the Holy Spirit, not according to kind of our old patterns, but according to the new patterns for which Christ has set us free. Uh, I do love one thing about the uh, Holy Triduum uh, that I, I, I always remember a teacher teaching me many years ago uh, but that it's fascinating. They're really just one liturgy. 
right? Yeah. On Holy Thursday, it begins with the sign of the cross, right? In the name of the Father, and Son. You, you begin the liturgy, and then it just ends with the Jesus in the garden, right? We go with the disciples, and like the disciples, we leave him. And then we show up at Calvary. There's no beginning of the Mass or the the, the, the celebration of the Lord's or, or the, the crucifixion or the mm-hmm. passion of the Lord on Good Friday. There's no beginning, really, and there's no ending. And then when the Easter Vigil starts, it just starts with candles and light. There's no beginning in the name of the Father. Yeah. But then it ends finally with the name. And so really, yeah, that's yeah, one yeah. long liturgy. But how wonderful that it kind of reforms and retrains us. I had a friend who was uh, not Catholic, but went to the Easter vigil one time and just was so overwhelmed with the beauty, the love of scripture and the love of Christ uh, that that was really a defining moment for her being able to uh, understand in a way, not only with her head, but kind of with her heart that there was something, you know, deeply true in in the Catholic faith. Uh, I like to ask uh, our our guests three questions. So uh, quick questions at the end. What's a book you're reading? Book I'm reading currently uh, is... The I'm reading uh, <laughs> several. Yeah. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, f- for fun, I'm reading uh, the first edition of uh, the first book of uh, uh, collected Jorkins by Lord Dunsany, hmm. who's an early 20th century writer who writes all these it's marvelous short stories that are just yeah. charming. And uh, I, you know, it's nice downtime. <laughs> That's great. That's great. And uh, what's a spiritual practice uh, or something that you do on a daily basis to? You know, stay grounded. Well, in addition to the daily rosary, I like to pray uh, the uh, liturgy of the hours as mm-hmm. often as I'm able. I try to do at least one hour a day. Uh, I'm a, I'm a Benedictine oblate, and so I'm supposed mm-hmm. to pr- pray at least one hour of the yeah. Benedictine office yeah. a day. And just as a note, those it doesn't necessarily take an hour to pray an hour. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're so, observing. Yeah. You're marking the yeah, hour. Yeah, seven hours. Yeah, yeah. So, Fifteen uh, minutes. You yeah. Know. Exactly. yeah, yeah. <laughs> And uh, but that's beautiful. The liturgy, of the hours, and uh, what's a what's a belief about God uh, that you held at some point in your life that you discovered was false, and uh, and th- what was the truth you discovered, and, and and how did that help you find meaning and purpose? Oh well, fittingly, the the one that was most shocking to me was uh, when I realized I held a heresy about the Eucharist some years ago. <laughs> you know, I was probably nineteen, twenty the time, and I was reading, uh, I think it was A Cradle of Redeeming Love. It's, anyway, I realized that I, I was a consubstantialist. I, I, I implicitly held that the bread is really there and and our Lord is there substantially. And um, realizing, well, that can't be true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, as that was made manifest, and, and uh, the, the Eucharist was more wonderful than I had realized. And it was a greater act of love, a greater manifestation of divine love than I first realized. Uh, well, how, how fitting. Yeah. Uh, so thank you very much, uh, Dr. Lenman, uh, for being on Pleasure. our show. Thank you. Uh, for people who may be interested, we have uh, several other episodes on uh, dedicated to the Eucharistic revival. And thanks again. Uh, so we really appreciate your being on our show. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app to help others find the show. And if you want to take the next step, please consider joining our Annunciation Circle so we can continue to bring you more free content. We'll see you next time on The Catholic Theology Show.